Hello there, this is All the Brian's where a Brian interviews Brian's. And this episode's Brian is the first Brian on the show that I didn't know going into the interview. So it was a fun and, dare I say, vital step towards expanding our ever-growing network of Brian's. <laughs> well, he is a classical musician, and how I got in touch with him is that my old roommate who works in, in that world at Carnegie Hall um, had a performance at National Sawdust in Williamsburg, which he invited me to recently. And so when I started doing this experiment, uh, I remembered that someone out with us that night in this larger group of musicians um, was named Brian as well. <laughs> so I just asked the old roommate if this was true, and he's like, yeah, he's a double bass player, and put us in touch. So his name is Brian Ellingson, and like the best of the Brians, he was up for seeing what this experiment was all about. Uh, he is a New York City-based double bassist chamber musician, and soloist, um, specializing in contemporary music. Um, the New York Times has described his interpretations as coaxing an amazing variety of sounds from his instrument. I'm skimming some of the stuff from the internet. Uh, as a soloist, he's been featured in a bunch of international festivals and performed with all sorts of ensembles. And as a chamber musician, he's a standing mem member of Dakota, the first ever affiliate ensemble of Carnegie Hall, which sounds pretty sweet. Um, he also has a master's degree from Yale School of Music. All right, Brian, you're making the rest of us Brian's look bad, but um, enough describing because here's actually a quick snippet of him playing so everyone can kind of get an idea if you don't know what a double bass sounds like. Very cool sounds from that instrument. And now here's that interview with Brian Ellingson. All right. <laughs> Hello, Brian. Uh, thank you for coming on the show and enlightening us with your Brian knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a mutual friend in common, which is how I got your contact information. But like, I don't really know you, which is actually a good thing. Yeah. Because the first part of the show is kind of like learning what kind of Brian you are. Okay. Uh, by quickly like profiling a, a typical day in your life. Okay. Um, so why don't we just start out by having you tell us like what's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is Brian, obviously, <laughs> uh, and I'm a uh, classical musician, uh, double bass player. Okay, double bass, and that's like the giant instrument. Right? Yeah, it's like a cello but bigger. Okay, so we'll we'll get into that. Let's get into everything by like why don't you well, let's let's like walk through like almost like a typical day in your life. Like let's say it's like a weekday. Um, like what time are you waking up about? I mean, it depends on what I have going on. Yeah. Uh, I can wake up anywhere between 5.30 a.m. to noon, <laughs> depending <laughs> on what's going on. Okay. Uh, but if, if we're talking about a normal weekday, um, typically if I have, you know, if I'm working, I'll have rehearsals. Um, sometimes rehearsals will start like 10 a.m. So I wake up around 8 and have breakfast and drag the bass onto the subway and I... <clears throat> between like nine forty five and ten, I'll be to my rehearsal place. And wait, it's wait, always so, wait, so hold on here. Like, how how is the process of getting the bass on the subway? Then this thing is a huge instrument. It's hell. It's yeah. the vein of my existence. It's I mean, like, talk to any bass player, and they'll probably one of the first things they'll do is they'll probably complain about transportation. And do you always uh, take the subway then, or yes? Yeah. I can't say I've seen too many bass uh, bass instruments on the subway because, mm -hmm. like, you would always notice it, but like, right? I mean, uh, I, you, I mean, all bass players will use a wheel. In mm -hmm. their, like at the end of the instrument, there's um, there's an end pin, which is what 
kind of adjust the instrument to your particular height. And you take that end pin out and you stick a wheel in, which is like specially designed for the instrument. And you can wheel the bass around and it's, it's actually quite easy. But, you know, what sucks about it is if it's rush hour, you know, if, if it's rush hour, yeah. if it's like, you know, between 8.30 and 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, I have to get to rehearsal by 10 or, or something like that. And if the trains are just really crowded, it, there comes the option of me not getting in. So, um, it, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. And people are either really, at least the people of New York, are either really, like, nice and sympathetic. Yeah. And they'll, like, offer a seat or they'll get out of your way. Or they're the exact opposite and they're like, how dare you bring this big instrument <laughs> on, the pl- on the train? How dare you take up my personal space? Um, so you get all kinds of different... So do you do you go through the turnstiles, or do you always have to go through like uh, well, the, the, yeah. the side door thing? I can do both. Uh, I can either swipe my metro card and pick it up over the turnstile, yeah, and then like kind of shimmy it through the turnstile, and then go through the turnstile like with my waist hitting the turnstile like normal. Or I just have to go to the attendant and just give them a nod, and the second they see me with something big, they usually intuitively know that I'm going to swipe my card and turn the turnstile and then they unlock the door for me so how how much does like a bass uh, instrument weigh <laughs> you know i was thinking about that earlier today i never have actually weighed it i'm assuming <laughs> between 30 and 35 pounds okay um, but if you so that's not that's that seems lighter than i was expecting yeah um and each bass is different my bass is kind of heavy uh, from other bases that i've uh, picked up and played on but if you are flying with a bass that's a totally different story because it basically travels in a huge, hard case that looks like only I would describe it as King Tut's tomb. You know, it's, it, it stands <laughs> yeah, You about, could fit a person in there. You could totally fit a person in there. Oh, yeah. You could lock a person in there and then like bury him in the river or something and no one would ever know. But that, when my base goes in my flight case, it's, it clocks in at about 101 pounds. Jeez. Okay. So but I have a really that old is case. a heavy duty case then. It weighs more yeah. than the actual but they have, instrument. But my case is old. They have other kinds of cases now that are super light. Um, mm-hmm. They have neck off bases where bases that where the neck comes off and you travel with it. Interesting. In two different so it's like with a bike that yeah is foldable except exactly. for the base. Wow, mm-hmm. I had no idea. <laughs> there are. It's amazing what technology will do for the base. <laughs> okay, so you're saying your schedule varies a lot based yeah. on what's going on, and I can imagine you know like I think a lot of Brian's want to know like how do you make uh, yeah how do you make a living as like a musician uh, and what what fills like what fills your work week. Um, well, it is feast or famine, as yeah. I've come to see it. Uh, I moved to New York about six years ago, uh, seven years ago now, after I finished up grad school and just started doing the freelance thing. And sometimes it's super, super busy playing with a variety of different groups. Um, uh, I do work freelance, so sometimes I'm playing with um, opera companies. Um, there was a company that I worked with for a while called Gotham Chamber Opera that I play with. There's a chamber collective that I'm a part of called Decoda, and we have concerts all over the world, and we do things all over the city. Um, There is, I do some theater work, some touring companies with some theater things, some off-Broadway things. So So are you primarily a performer, you would say? Yeah, I teach a little bit. And so, like, do, and I, like, most classical musicians, do they end up having to teach a little bit to, yeah, I would with, say, during its slower times of year or things um, like I that? I would say probably a lot of, you know, no matter where you are in the classical music world, teaching is always a part of it. Uh-huh. Um, like, you know, if you, we talk about like people who are in the New York Philharmonic or the, or the Metropolitan Opera um, uh, Orchestra, a lot of those um, principal players uh, will teach at Juilliard or they teach at Manhattan School or they will teach at, um, I don't know, sometimes Manus or like they will teach at uh, places 
Um, I personally have been doing a lot of uh, teaching artist work, mm -hmm. which is when um, uh, a, a public school, a New York City public school or charter school will partner up with um, a classical musician and we will go in there as, as a guest like once or twice a week and we will work with the kids on like creative projects. Like we will say, okay, sixth grade string class, over the next two weeks, yeah. we will be we'll be like writing our own compositions. So you're not like a certified public school teacher, but you go in as a guest and you do fun projects. And yeah, that's through the, these different organizations. Yeah. Through, that, so yeah. Um, I guess what everyone wants to know then is how much is your life like uh, uh, Whiplash and or Mozart in the Jungle? Uh, I actually haven't seen Mozart in the Jungle, but my girlfriend has. She's, uh -huh. you know, says it's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I've only seen one episode of Mozart in the Jungle and... Uh, People seem to like it. I couldn't really get much through the first episode. I watched the first episode and I was like, okay, it's, it's, okay, it's okay, it's cool. Um, but from what I've heard from people who are really into that show, apparently it's quite accurate, um, uh, more or less. But the premise for that show came from a book that was written, um, a kind of tell-all book called Mozart in the Jungle, um, that was chronicling the lives and times of the New York freelance classical musician scene in the 70s. So there were, you know, uh, I've never, I've never. So it's not a modern, modern story. It's I a didn't take. Know it's a take on that book, um, uh, and the book. Okay. And the book, um, it was written. I forget who wrote it, but uh, the author um, just kind of. It's a who's who of names of like you know, and then at this concert, such and such conductor was like doing blow in the back dressing room with so and so first violinist of this orchestra from Amsterdam or whatever. <laughs> so like uh it it was kind of like a like racy steamy tell all. Well they but, have to make it super dramatic, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I haven't quite seen the show, but um it, it, the career of a freelance musician I think is it really is at least for me personally. It's feast or famine. You know, there's times that are super super busy and I have concerts up the wazoo and I have projects and tours coming in all over the place. So much, so much that I have to turn things down and kind of make my schedule work and I'm running all over the place week to week. And then there's other times where it's just slow. Like summers yes. are notoriously Is slow. That, that's and, like the, the slow season, I guess, in the classical world? Yeah, or? I mean, well, um, a lot of... Uh, Should be a dumb question. I don't know. No, I, I'm a pretty no, uncultured asshole. No, no, no not at all. <laughs> not at all. Uh, no, summers tend to be slow. Um, what normally happens, at least in New York, and I think a lot uh, all over the country and the world, really, is... Um, in the summers, musicians kind of pick up their groups of friends and they go do a festival somewhere that's like really pretty. Okay. Um, so a lot of times, a lot of New York musicians are gone during the summer doing festivals in, you know, the Vermont countryside or oh, nice. like, you know, <laughs> down in Charleston, South Carolina or something like that. Uh, so, yeah. So so New York, if you're staying in New York uh, uh, during the summer, sometimes the work kind of dries up. But there's things here and there. So it's either you're either way too busy or... If you're lucky, it's steady and you're not driving yeah. yourself nuts and you have work coming in or it's it's kind of really slow. Okay, so throughout your week then like how much uh how much of it is taken up by just practicing or are you, are you just a master you don't have to practice at all? No, no, I've always, I practice <laughs> a lot. I just came from practicing. Yeah. Um it, you'll probably hear me say this a lot. It depends. It always depends. Yeah. Uh if I and can you practice at home? Is that something yeah. that, you, mm -hmm. you know, your your neighbors are okay with all this? My like... neighbors actually love it. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I live in the brownstone, the basement apartment of a brownstone, and the guy who lives above us owns the entire building. Uh, and he is like an amateur pianist and always loves classical music. He's like on the board of certain... Well, that's like a good uh, yeah. situation. Then. But in general, the, in general, the sound of the bass doesn't really bother too many people because it's quite low. 
but you know, if I was a trumpet player or something, it might I might have to negotiate times in which I can practice like with my neighbors, like nothing after nine o'clock or something like that. Um, so, so this instrument, it's uh, it's not just used in classical music. Like I, you know, it's used in jazz, mm-hmm. and I've seen it used in like you know bluegrass and country. Mm-hmm. And do you ever play these styles of music through these organizations, or are you booking like just random gigs as well as a performer? Um, I primarily do classical, and I mean, what I guess what is known as like uh, new music or contemporary classical, or like more avant-garde kind of um, classical music. Stuff that's at national sawdust. Exactly, <laughs> stuff that's at national sawdust, or stuff that's um, I don't know on various seasons of various things. Uh, but I don't really do too much jazz, although I love jazz. I listen to it all the time. Um, I do do some, I play in a band with um, a lovely Broadway singer named Laura Benanti. And every now and then when we do things, you know, there'll be some like, you know, she'll do her take on like a jazz standard or something. And, and um, so like there's a little bit of jazz there, but primarily I'm a, I'm a classical player. So, But you're right. I mean, the, the, the bass is very versatile. You can play yeah, bluegrass yeah. and pop and what's that band called? Um, Mumford and Sons. They have it. Yeah, they have yeah. an upright bass player in there. You know. So you, you're not doing a lot of the slapping on the no, using no, it as really, percussion. Not really. <laughs> uh, not not so much. But I think it's really cool. So I mentioned my girlfriend had seen Mozart in the Jungle. She also like went throughout you know school up up to high school playing violin seriously, mm-hmm. and and that was it. But then she said there was always good like you know self deprecating like violin jokes. Like, are there any good double bass jokes? Oh, that there's, you guys oh, have amongst yourselves. Okay, no, well, there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of double bass jokes. The one uh, good bass joke is something about um, oh, I'm gonna fuck it up now. But my, I think my favorite classical music joke uh, is is a viola joke, and there's a lot of viola jokes. <laughs> and if if anyone doesn't know what a viola is, it's like it looks just like a violin. It's just a little bit um, bigger and richer and deeper sound than than, than the violin. <clears throat> but I don't know. There's a lot of viola jokes, and my favorite joke was let's see if I can do it. It's like What's the difference between a violist and a pizza? Uh, a violist. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, okay, I'm gonna start over. Start over. Sorry, we can edit. We can edit this. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between a violist and a pizza? I don't know. A pizza can feed a family of four. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is kind of harsh. It's just like, yeah, ouch. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay, so that I mean that that actually is a good lead into this next question, and this is we're gonna talk controversy in the double bass world this is according oh to wikipedia oh so this is this is the only research i've done here okay okay so on wikipedia the instrument's exact lineage is a is still a matter of some debate with scholars divided on whether the bass is derived from the viol or the violin family what where does your stance on this oh um that sounds pretty accurate there there is a uh are you in one camp or the other or are you just I like oh say, the scholars i wouldn't that say out. there's not really a camp <laughs> i mean there's there's some amazing players out there especially in new york who really specialize in um like the scholarly performance of earlier music yeah so music from like i don't know the, you know the 1600s or you know early 1700s and back then the instruments looked totally different like you know just like architecture i mean like a building in 1697 does not look like a what a building would look like now because of because now you can fold it up and because now you can fold it up (laughs) yeah so yeah the base i mean don't quote me on this because i'm certainly not a scholar but the base has evolved all all string instruments have kind of evolved um from yeah kind of like a like the vile the vile family which were instruments that had uh, more than four strings and they were tuned a little bit differently. 
and they were like um, you would have uh, vials of different uh, registers. Like just like now, you'd have um, uh, you'd have a violin, you have a viola, you have a cello, and you have a bass, going from highest register to lowest register. And you would have vials um, that would also be in different registers. Um, and a bass vial would kind of be kind of a long distant cousin to what the modern uh, upright double bass is today. Um, and even out all even all throughout um, uh, the centuries where the bass was being played and, and, and as we know it today with four strings, you know, some basses even even to this day have five strings. Some some of them have four strings. Some of them are tuned in fourths. Some of them are tuned in a, uh, um, some bass players tune them in fifths. Um, during the Viennese era, um, there was a lot of really famous bass players. I'm sorry, during the Viennese era, probably around <laughs> like, you know, the late 17th century um, and all throughout the 1700s. Uh, the bass was tuned in what is known as Viennese tuning, which is a, a different kind of way of tuning it as opposed to the, how we would uh, tune it today in fourths. Um, and I'm totally nerding. <laughs> I, right I love now, it. No, we, we, but but the point is, so the, Brian's that are you know listening to this episode because they're like, I want to know what a double basis is. They're yeah. they're getting a nice history lesson. And uh, <laughs> but what the point of I guess to get back to the question you're answering is the question you're asking is um, the bass has always kind of evolved as an instrument. And various tunings, various setups, and various its direct tunings. lineage is debated. <laughs> is the yeah? I guess you could say that. Okay, I could say it's debated. So also, here's another controversy according to Wikipedia, okay. and I'm just still amused that Wikipedia has like controversies. That's funny. It's supposed to be like just informative, like mm-hmm. I don't know, straight information and objective. While the implication, while amplification is rarely used in classical music. In some cases where a bass soloist performs a concerto with a full orchestra, subtle amp- amplification called acoustic enhancement may be used. The use of microphones and amplifiers in classical setting has led to debate within the classical community as, quote, purists maintain that the natural acoustic sound of classical voices or instruments in a given hall should not be altered. Okay. Are, are, are you, do you agree with the purists here, or are, are you... Um, I mean, you're, you're, you said you're more avant-garde and yeah, how you, how you I play, think, you so... Yeah, I feel like if... <laughs> If a bass player is playing a concerto and they're having a hard time being heard and they mm-hmm. want to use a really good quality amplification, which normally would probably, I think, come from using the house uh, acoustical staff, you know, they probably would be like the experts at that. <laughs> I say go for it. If it lets you play more, um, if, you, if it makes you feel more comfortable as a player to use amplification, that's fine. Now, an instrument such as the, let's say, piano or violin or um, oboe or like any higher register instrument that just has a lot of power to it yeah that isn't as low as the bass those higher registers will naturally project project in a concert hall over an orchestra much easier um, but if you're a bass player it is much harder because the register and just the timbre of the instrument is so low um, it is harder to get that sound to project to the back of the hall and over an orchestra so bass players usually have um, a bit of a um, rough time sometimes uh, projecting over an orchestra. Um, it's funny because they look so big. You think they're just going to be booming. And like, well, you that's know? you know it's interesting you say that because a lot of times when I play when I go into like uh, classrooms and I play I'll you know do like little guest appearances for for yeah. kids and stuff. You know, oftentimes the younger the kids are, like say if you're like in kindergarten or first grade. You, you know, they see this, you, know, you walk into the classroom, they see this big instrument. And they're like, oh my God, what is that thing? That's so big. And, you know, and then before I even play it, I, I talk to them and I say, well, this is, a, this is a bass. And it's, you know, you might have seen a violin or maybe even a cello. This is bigger than that. 
and it has a much lower, deeper sound. And the funny thing is about the reaction of the kids is that even before I go to play it, the first sound they hear, they like frantically cover, their, <laughs> they, they frantically cover their ears because they're because they see this big instrument and they're so afraid that it's going to be this huge uh, that's sound yeah, that's going to break their ears. We're conditioned to see big as louder. Yeah, like if you saw a huge subwoofer speaker the size of a wall. Oh yeah. The second someone turned it on, you'd be like, "Oh shit, it's going to be blowing yeah. my eardrums out." Yeah. But when actually in in uh, in acoustics, you know, with acoustic instruments, it's it's kind of the exact opposite. But I just think it's funny when a room full of yeah. kindergartners will see. Well, you're, you're conditioning these kids now to, to stay on their toes when it comes to size and volume. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so also Wikipedia, a person who plays this instrument, the terminology question here is called a bassist, a double bassist, a double bass player, a contrabassist, a contrabass player, or a bass player. And is this just personal preference now? The correct answer is W, all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, personal all... preference. Okay. Yeah, I... um. I always say double bass. Well, in America, it's known. It's more known as double bass or just bass. I think all over the world, bass is just fine. Um, in America, we you normally know, say double bass. In Europe, uh, contrabass is used more um, widely. In, in Europe, it's contrabass. Usually, like the actual translation in like German is uh, contrabass. Okay. Um, or uh, in you know if you. Or in Europe, and normally they will say contrabass, and if you say double bass, they'll understand. But they'll normally. Well, I'll be there this summer, so I'm going to ask around. Where are you going? <laughs> uh, I'm going to Paris. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. So awesome. And a nice little trip there, but cool. uh, I'll, I will definitely be on the streets asking anybody I can ask. And if you contrabass, see... I'll, I'll just hold up a photo. I'll just hold up a photo. What is? And I'll have to say it's in French now, but I also learned that. What is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. And. Uh, or just look out for like a bass player walking uh, on the subway or something. <laughs> let's let's go back now to when did you start playing um, and why did you pick the double bass? Were your parents thrilled that you chose a very large instrument? Um, um, I think my parents were thrilled that I wanted to do music because up until that point I was like sitting on the couch doing nothing. And, and so I was what, a waste how old were life. you? How, what age was this? Well, I started doing music in general when I was, I think, um, like 12 years old. And I started on guitar. I started playing like guitar, um, and then what a good guitar transition into. Uh, well, you know, I was playing guitar a lot, and I was like in like rock bands and all that kind of stuff, and like you know doing the singer songwriter thing. And then when I got to high school, all of my friends were like in band and chorus and stuff, and we didn't have a string program in my high school when I was young. So uh, the band teacher was like, "Hey, look, if you want to learn bass, you know, you already play guitar quite well, so you can just." You know, the bass is close enough. You have to learn how to hold a bow and everything. But I was like, well, it'll be fun because then I can be with all my friends and be one of the cool band nerds. <laughs> uh, so that's what I did. And I started. And then after about a year or so, I, you know, I just, you know, I really liked it. And I, it was at that time of life when I think high schoolers have to figure out what they want to do and where they want to go to college and what they want to specialize in, yeah. if anything. And I was like, well, I've been doing this music thing for so long. I might as well just continue on this path and take auditions and and uh, and go to school for music. And that's what I did. Okay. So did you do you have a double bass idol? Uh, did you have one growing up, or idol. do you just probably have one now? You know, no, I I will say my double bass idol is uh, a guy. My my first my when I was in undergrad, uh, the teacher at uh, the school I went to undergrad in. Uh, his name was Robert Black, and he is a fantastic double bass player, fantastic human being, uh, remains being a is great... Is he why you went to the school you went to? Yeah, 
because okay. he's a great teacher and I, you know, I had met him and I had lessons with him and he's just a really great person, a smart person, a great mentor, a great player, a great musician. Um, and I learned so much from him and he still continues to be like, your double bass idol. Yeah. <laughs> or my life idol. The guy's yeah. just kind of like a like a prophet. <laughs> um, so do you wish there were more double bass solos? Or are, are, are you, do you, you not want to have that? You know, interesting you ask that because that's one of the reasons that I got into playing more contemporary music or new music. It's because there's more? Yeah, there's more of an opportunity for, um, well, there is more of an opportunity for bass solos. Uh, uh, you know, the bass is an instrument like the piano or the cello or the violin where every major composer has probably a cello concerto or a violin concerto or a piano concerto uh, or uh, a string string quartets. Uh, the bass is often left out of kind of all that, um, with the exception of, you know, of course, throughout time, there has been uh, composers uh, in the 18th century, especially that wrote a lot of concerti for the double bass. There's a guy named Von Hall. There's a guy named Dittersdorf. Um, so, so there were bass concertos written, but I personally found the solo repertoire of the double bass to get particularly interesting in the 20th century. In like the latter part of the 20th century, you have all these kind of interesting um, contemporary uh, composers writing for the bass um, with a, with an orchestra, with a you know a concerto, with an orchestra, with a bass soloist, or just bass solo on its own, just the double bass. Okay. And I found a lot of that repertoire to be really interesting. And going back to Robert Black, my kind of mentor and undergrad teacher, it all he, goes back to Robert. Black. He, yeah, he <laughs> he was a huge advocate for like pioneering new works and and commissioning composers to write for you and and um, and, and everything. So that's kind of why, uh, partially because of him, but partially because of I liked the repertoire in the new music world for solo double bass. So I just kind of grasped on to the new music world because of that and um and yeah so so to answer your question <laughs> do i wish there were more um solo repertoire for the bass i think there's a lot okay i mean i feel like we can always talk to composers more and say hey you should so write you can bass. you can be the spearhead of this movement well i think there's a lot of people who are already <laughs> being a spearhead for it but i mean yeah I you try were part the, of it then i okay. try the best i can so when you're playing do you do you sit or stand, or do you stand when you're playing a solo? Like, how, how does this work? That's I, a good question. I've seen uh, photos of both on, when I'm my, my, my very brief uh, research. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a good question. Um, some bass players sit on a stool. Mm -hmm. Some bass players uh, stand. Some bass players do both. I personally do both. I primarily stand when I'm practicing and I'm playing very intensely. But if I'm going to be in like a three-hour rehearsal and I'm playing, you know, orchestral rep. Um, stuff that is um, mostly low in the register that isn't too overly physically taxing. If I'm going to be playing for three or four hours straight, I'll sit. Okay. So do you have a most uh, memorable performance that comes to mind? It could be good or bad. Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, there was, I've been touring with a show for a while um, called An Iliad. Um, it uh, is a show that um, was written by um, some people listening might know, uh, an actor by the name of um, Dennis O'Hare. He was uh, Russell Edgington in uh, True Blood, and he has like a lot of various um, kind of character actor. Things. I don't know. He's one of those guys. There's where, Brian's like, out there that will know. Him. Yeah, if you saw <laughs> if you saw the guy's face, you'd be like, "Oh, that's that guy from that thing." Yeah, but no one, you might not know his name. Anyway, he wrote a play uh, along with his uh, friend and colleague Lisa Peterson 
about uh, it's a modern adaptation of Homer's The Iliad. Um, very modern. It's it's just a guy on a stage, you know, and he just kind of launches into the story. It's like a kind of uh, modernized uh, version of it, you could say. And I brought I got brought onto the project by the composer where they decided that they wanted to have music to accompany this play. And this composer knew of me, and, and he was like, you know what, I really think that we can use, um, like, solo double bass and, and looping pedals and electronics and all kinds of interesting uh, things, um, because he kind of felt that the sound of the bass represented, like, the, the low, uh, violent textures of the play, but also it could be very high and delicate and beautiful, uh, uh, representing those textures of the play as well, if that makes sense. So, anyway, we've been toying with the show kind of all over the place, on and off, over the past, God, five years or so. And we were doing a show in L.A. We were doing a three-week three week run in L.A. And a lot of the show has me doing all kinds of crazy stuff where I, like, hit the instrument, I bang on the instrument, and there's a point where, like, I use... But I need both hands to kind of knock and pits, and pits various textures on the bass. So I'm, like, knocking on the bass and I'm pitting at the same time to kind of create this, this one texture. And I, there was always a stool in my little area of the stage, and I was right at the foot of the stage, and I have my stand, I'm sorry, I have my bow on the stool, uh, and there's one part of the show where I have to, you know, I'm doing these textures where I'm using both hands, and I have to, and I go back and I take the bow because I have to, I have a cue where I have to hit a really loud um, arco bowed note. Um, and out of the hundred times that I've done this play, sometimes I'm like up on a catwalk, sometimes <laughs> I'm on the foot of the stage, and I always thought about this moment in the show, and I'm like, you know what? I'm surprised that I've never dropped the bow. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm I, I have to go and grab the bow in like the, in like a quarter of a second, and then boom, hit hit this note with the bow. And sure enough, this one night in L.A., I go to grab the bow, and it just escapes my hands and goes chit chitter chit chattering <laughs> off the stage into like the and it like bounces oh. and goes in like the, the first like couple rows so and then i thought oh i'm fucked because i i can't i you know my role in the play is not just music but i it's kind of like acting a little bit too like you know there's a presence of of the musician being there on stage and i'm like oh what am i gonna do and then there's this guy and i'm still playing i'm still doing what I can without the bow. And there's this guy in the audience that just looked, it was right by his foot. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's, and he kind of signals to me to say like, do you want me to get that? And I looked at him and I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he picked it up and he put it right by my feet. And then I, I, I picked it up and I got, got it. And okay. And the, the funny thing about this show was that just happened to be the night in LA that the entire cast of true blood was in the audience. And I'm a huge fan of the show. And the girl, so did they? So they could tell it was a mistake. Uh, well, a lot of people didn't notice, really. I mean, like if you okay. know the show very well, then you could. You tell. probably, but you're able to just pull it off. You know, I tried to pull it of... off the best I could. Okay. Um. So I'm talking after the show to the True Blood cast, and um, the girl who plays uh, Suki Stock Suki Stockhouse or whatever her name is in the show, um, Anna Paquin is the actress's name, um, and she. She totally called me out on it, and it was so funny because I was I was talking to her afterwards, and I was. A How does bit, she know? So she. Well, I was a little bit starstruck, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, blah blah blah. Thanks for coming to the show. I'm a big fan." Um, and we're talking about the show, and I'm like, "Yeah, I just happened to you know drop my boat tonight." She's like, "Yeah, I saw it," <laughs> and she was like very direct about it, and I was just like humorless, like, 
I expected more from you. Yeah, no, she was cool. She was cool, but it was yeah that that was memorable. And the one time I dropped my bow, I'm like starstruck. Yeah, like, that is a weird turn of events. The one time, <laughs> one time it happened. Yeah. Okay, so do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't even know, piece or least favorite piece that you have to play. I have a that lot you have of, to play. <laughs> I have a, I have a lot of favorite pieces. Um, I love the Brahms symphonies. I think Brahms' first symphony and Brahms' second symphony are two of the best. Okay, I, I don't know these, but someone out there will. Someone okay, so will, uh, really what good. about your least favorite? My least favorite, Pockbell's Canon. Ah, okay, I actually know that one. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's just annoying. played at every wedding, and yeah. it's just like, oh, yeah. God. All right, so uh, another, another two-part question. Favorite place to play in the city, and then... Your least favorite. You can be vague about your least favorite because you know you don't want to you know make anybody mad here, but mm-hmm. you can be vague about that. So uh, okay, uh, favorite place to play in the city, or at least favorite place to play in the city. Yeah, both. So like venue, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite place to play in the city is um, the small theater at, at Carnegie Hall. Um, uh, at Carnegie Hall, there's three there's three stages. There's uh, Stern Auditorium, which is the big, 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 big yeah, hall. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Um, there's Zankel Hall, which is a little bit smaller and it's like underground. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's in the more modern uh, uh, hall, and then there's Weil Recital Hall, which is um, it's a much small. It's like kind of like the smaller recital hall version of Stern. And every time we do a concert there, it's always just very intimate and very nice, and it's really good for chamber music or like you know solo playing. And it's a very small audience, and you can just like look in the audience and see your friends and feel like kind of in a way like you're, you're like <laughs> like you're in. Like somebody's like, like a nice apartment. Or yeah, it's like a really nice apartment loft. on the Upper East Side, and they yeah. just happen to have a stage there. Yeah. <laughs> so I like I like playing in that place. Place. Least favorite place to play in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I have one. Um, Is there any place that has like notoriously like bad sound or like acoustics or something like that? Um, there's one I'm thinking of, but I won't say the name. Okay, you can be vague about it. It's a. <laughs> but like, a, so what's bad about the acoustics? Well, it's it's a place that. Um, has a lot of classical music artists uh, often, and but you know the 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 room wasn't designed for natural acoustics, so it was really designed for like you know having rock rock shows there, like groups that are always amplified, uh-huh. and they have a you know sound mixers there, and, and and they are normally you can work more with mixing the sound if everything is amplified, mm-hmm. but the acoustic sound just doesn't really work there. So all uh, all classical music musician artists have to be amplified whether they like it or not and it's it sometimes it worked great um but sometimes it's always a little bit like i wish it could sound better sound better but it's at the at no fault of the venue itself or the people who run it it's just um it's just the room the room just kind of doesn't speak very well okay all right well we'll let the brines out there figure that one out (laughs) (laughs) um so when does your day typically end then um, I mean, I guess it's all over the place if you're doing like night performances and mm-hmm. socializing afterwards and yeah. stuff. It does. I mean, so I guess it's like, how, what is the latest performance performances in, in your like, like the base world? Like how late do these shows go? Um, typically, a concert will start at, you know, 730 or 8. Yeah. And be done like two hours after. So like around uh, like 10 or so. Is there any show that you've ever done that's gone like notoriously like crazy late, which is just like just a weird show? Well, one time I did, I was playing uh, a, a, a piece at a thing in New York called the Bang in a Can Marathon. Um, it happens once a year and we're coming up on that time now. And uh, it was the kind of 20th or, t- or 25th anniversary of this um, 
new music marathon happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided that they were going to um, throw a big celebration and just have it be 24 hours, you know, like eight, like 8 a.m. to 8 a.m., just nonstop music. And I was playing in a piece that uh, our start time was at two o'clock in the morning. So I just kind of had to rally and uh, wow. we, we went out at two o'clock in the morning. And <laughs> that is, it, was, it was, it was kind of like, it's kind of like um, the Bang in the Can Marathon, I guess you could say is like, uh, it's like the yearly new music Woodstock of New York where people just kind of come and people hang out and they can come and go as they please. But that particular one was 24 hours long and, and um, going on at two o'clock in the morning was tiring. Okay, so uh, what uh, what kind of music that's like a guilty pleasure for you? You know, I'm sure you, you know it's a pendulum. You don't want to listen to classical music all the time because you're oh, playing I, it all the time. No. So you got to like you know cleanse the palate. Like, what yeah. do you cleanse the palate with? You have a guilty pleasure. What do I cleanse the palate with? Um, well, I'm like I'm a huge RuPaul fan. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race like <laughs> religiously. I anything that she does, I love. Uh, she has like all these songs that are like you know just like super catchy like. <laughs> Like like dance kind of songs and and uh yeah like songs the titles called um don't be jealous of my boogie or um glamazon uh but yeah they're like super poppy and super catchy and like way too auto tuned and I just I don't know I kind of love it <laughs> great <laughs> um so like how did you end up in New York then like what's your background like are you originally from this part of the country uh, mm-hmm. the East Coast. Yeah, I grew up in the Hudson Valley, um, a small town called Walk Hill, um, which is, if you know the area, it's not that far from New Paltz, or not that far from West Point, or not that far from Newburgh, but whatever. Don't um, really know the area. So yeah, no, it's okay. It's about an hour or so north of uh, New York City. Okay. And so, this is like people, is this like the next, this is the closest city then for people growing up that like want to move to a city or work right, in a city? Yeah, I mean, I, opportunities. Uh, yeah, growing up, I had a lot of friends who had parents who would work in the city and just commute back and forth yeah. every day. Um, and then after I left grad school, I just, I always wanted to live in New York City, in, in the city itself. And after I was done with school, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to move here. Um, so I was always kind of around the city. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, yeah, it's just only. So how long have you been living here? Seven years. And uh, so you like it, I'm assuming. Yeah, I like it. I think, uh, you know, living in New York is a love-hate relationship. Yeah. So what do you love and what do you hate about it? Um, Well, I can't think directly about what I love about it. So we'll start with what I hate about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. It just stresses me out sometimes. I feel like all New Yorkers can relate. And it's just sometimes you just have those moments where... You're on the train and it's crowded, and then you've got your and giant and double bass. Everyone's, you know, everyone's, mad at your double. <laughs> yeah, and it's you, know, you walk out of the train, like people are pushing you, and then you're already stressed because of other stuff. And then you walk on the street, and then the siren screams by you, and you're just like, God, it's just like ah, all the time, um, but not all the time. Um, and what I love about it, I don't know, it's home. Yeah, it's just, it's, I mean, it feels like, like home now. It you're totally feels years. like home now, and uh, you know. I have my life here and, you know, there's just no, it is a world capital. Like yeah. love it or hate it, you know, New York, London, Paris, Tokyo, like these are world capitals. And, and, you know, as, as much as, you know, I think inherently in New Yorkers, we complain about it. There's one thing we have to just can't deny is that there is no other city like it. And for that reason, yeah. I, I like it. So you, you plan on staying here for the foreseeable future? For the foreseeable future, yes. But I, I'll, I have had this fantasy of moving to L.A. Oh, oh traitor. I know, I know, but I don't know. I just, I, I think of sunshine. and but I probably All right. Know. 
Well, we won't get into that. I'll let that slide. Uh-huh. But uh, let's get into now, finally, the Brian questions. Okay. okay so this is where, you know, everything's going to be related to Brian. Okay. But we'll start, the, we'll start with the, the, you know, the starting question, which is, why did, do you know why your parents named you Brian? No idea. I think they wanted to name me Richard after my father, but that ended up becoming a middle name. And then I don't know where Brian came Yeah, so maybe a baby book or something like that. Maybe. That's how, that's how I was named, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, are you Irish at all? Is it related to any ancestry? But you don't know. You don't know why. But are you Irish? Yeah, I'm part Irish. I'm part of a lot of things. But I think my mom's, fa- like my mom's father, mm-hmm. was part Irish. And do you? Did your parents ever comment on your spelling of your name, I versus Y? I don't know if they ever did. Okay. I, yeah, it, it was are, just always I. And you're glad you're an I, Brian. I'm assuming. I'm kind of glad I'm an I, Brian. I guess. I guess <laughs> some could say that the Y Brians are unique. But growing up, I you know, growing up in grade school, I you know, knowing other Bryans, I always got along with the other Bryans with an I, but I always thought the the Bryans of the Y were kind of dicks. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So they might not all be dicks, but like you know. Yeah, because I've talked to a Y Brian now that he says that you know I Bryans we were like the majority, so they felt like second class, you know, citizens. They felt like second the Brian class camp. Bryans. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting this dynamic. So have you ever had any like memorable instances of your name being misspelled Brain? Oh, yeah, yeah, brain. I got um, uh, an email one time and the person uh, was writing, you know, like, thanks, Brian, towards the end. Or no, I think it was the opening of the email. And it was like, hi, Brian, but it automatically autocorrected to Brina. It's like, hey, Brina. And I was like, oh, hey. Did you know, like, Google autocorrects to when you type in, like, Brian a lot of times? It was autocorrected to Brain. And you'd be like, oh, we're showing you results for this because this is probably what you wanted, right? Not Brian. I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of times. I guess it depends on what we type a lot of. I think that there's some algorithm that picks up Hmm. on what we type a lot. Damn Google. I know. But, uh, okay, so what are your uh, siblings' names and do you have uh, pets and their names or children? Like, I want to know, like, what brian's are naming things and what brian's siblings are also named i don't have any pets um i grew up with a dog named midnight okay it's a black lab um, i have one sister whose name is janine um so your parents were like janine midnight brian <laughs> i guess so yeah i i've okay. never i've never actually named anything trying to you know create a data sample here a so data sample like what like... brian's named things what Brian's names things and what their parents also name things to also include Brian in that set. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, yeah, we're going we're yeah. to create a very unscientific data set. Yeah, it was Brian, <laughs> Janine, and Midnight, I guess. Okay. So, a uh, two-part question. Um, dead or alive, if you could choose one other Brian to meet, who would it be? And then, not necessarily the same person, then, who is your favorite Brian? A Brian to meet. Um, you can use this cheat sheet here. Oh, um... <laughs> But you're not limited to that cheat sheet. <laughs> oh, you know, Brian May, the guitarist of Queen, I've always been a huge fan of his. Um, other, You know, I can't think of other famous Brians that I'm, like, really into. But Brian May, I think, is interesting because um, he's a guitarist for Queen, brilliant musician. And the, what's interesting about that guy is that he always made his own guitars. Oh, I didn't like, know I'm that. Pretty, I'm pretty sure he made, like, the guitar that he played on for most of his career, he made himself. Okay. And it has a very distinct sound, and I always love the sound of that guitar. Nice. And all those old Queen records. So that was your yeah. I guess one let's to meet just say, and favorite. Um, mm, uh, oh, this is a really hard question. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Cranston, Breaking Bad director, or, or no, break, Breaking yeah, Bad actor. Actor, 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 yeah, yeah. Actor, yes, Brian Cranston. 
You know, he's the guy who played uh, yeah, Walter. Walter White. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I don't, yeah. I haven't seen the show, so I, everybody tells me I'm an idiot for not. There's too many shows. It, there's a lot of shows, but that is hands down, my, I think, my favorite show ever. So it's and interesting. He, he's a Y Brian. He's a y and there's Brian. not many Y Brian's on this famous Brian list. No, there's not. But he's uh, like he. I would say it. you know I'd say he's my now that I've seen the list in front of me of all the famous Brian's. I think um, Brian Cranston, one that I'd like to meet, and my favorite. I think he's brilliant in that show and he's a really good actor. All right. Well, another uh, Brian recommendation for Brian Cranston. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to watch that show. You have to. All right. So here's a Brian trivia question, and I'll give you a hint. Uh, if you need it. Okay. There's a popular Brian meme, or was a popular Brian meme out there. Do you know what it is? A Brian meme? Yeah, an internet meme. Yeah. You know, like Scumbag Steve, that's like an internet meme. You're going to have to give me a clue. Okay, know. so these were th- these are the words that would appear over this uh, internet meme. And you know they're always like one part up top and <laughs> yeah, one part at yeah. the bottom. So here's three of them. Finds fountain of youth, drowns in it. Turns on blender. Gets sued by Skrillex for copyright. Smokes candy cigarette. Cancer. What is this Brian meme? I honestly have no idea. It's it's uh the meme is bad luck Brian. Oh really? I don't know. Yeah, there's a there's a meme out there. Uh, bad luck Brian. Uh, it's it's a it's a few years old now because the guy the kid's photo in it. Uh, he's kind of grown up now. He, he looked like a dorky kind of kid. Uh-huh. Yeah. So <laughs> I've never seen that. So it makes me wonder though too. I have another theory is that like there's something like inherently funny I feel about the name Brian. And Maybe. do you feel the same way? Like sometimes I like, you hear it as like a punchline or like the character will be named this, but you're like, why did they name him Brian in that role? But there's nothing, you know, there's no like a uh, rationale I can like point to. I just have my suspicions. <laughs> I I don't know. I've never necessarily thought about the name being funny i feel like I, when you say a brian too that's also like uh i've heard of an that anonymous I, kind of thing like, yeah. oh, he's, he's a brian yeah i've, something I've like heard that. of that yeah i re- i you know saw something about that or i read something about that once and i just remember thinking i've never experienced that i've never thought about that but like i don't know i guess brian the name brian like that character could always be like a kind of like nerdy character like huh. I, I, don't, I don't i can't think of any like brians who are like known as being like a, a character in like a movie or a tv show or something a Brian that's like the sex symbol or like the leading man or like... So is Brian Cranston's not... His name isn't Brian in the Breaking no. Bad, but he's like the main guy, right? He's the main guy, yeah. Okay. Um, he's, yeah. I, yeah, I can't think of any like <laughs> Brian's that are... All right, so here here's the toughest question probably of all of them. Okay. Uh, if you had to choose a first name other than Brian, what would it be? Jordan. Jordan, okay. I wow, you had I... an answer. So was this something that you have always thought... I look Growing you... up... You would be like, what would my life been like if I was Jordan? Growing up, I always had a thing for like J names. I don't know, like, you know, um, like Jordan or like Jackson or like something like slightly exotic. And I'm, I'm saying like like Jordan and Jackson are exotic names. But like, uh, I don't know. There's something about a two-syllable name with a J. Interesting. That just kind of, like, it sounds sharp. And it sounds like, hmm, okay. that sounds like he's going to be somebody. <laughs> No, not us. Not no, a no. silly old Brian. We're just a two-syllable name that's weird, <laughs> or like shitty, nerdy. Okay, so overall, would you say Brian being a Brian has been a plus or a minus in your life? It's a yeah, I think it's a plus because like why the fuck not? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, thanks, thanks for doing this. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Brian's are much more enlightened now, based on your knowledge. Brian's now have all knowledge. the information. 
we, we have all the information regarding uh, what it's like to be a Brian that's a double bass player. I, I, I <laughs> hope I've provided enough. Yes. 